0: Guys, this is our first disagreement. (laughs) I know. I It's good. It's good for the show. It's good for us. (laughs) It's very good.
1: So, hi, hey, hello. Welcome back to Trail Society. I'm Corinne Malcolm. Hi, I'm Keely. Hey, I'm Hillary Allen. And we are going to do something a little different today. We are actually coming back to the mics to re-record a special extended intro intro for y'all. And we're really happy to do so. And let me tell you. We have some shit to discuss before we recorded this. We, I think we got into our first argument ever, so it's going to be great y'all. Um, before we dive into that nitty gritty, we've got some race results for you to highlight and Keely got sent a bunch of them. And so we're going to let her take it away from here.
0: Yeah. First off, shout out to Jenny Quilty. She has been blowing up the DMS with finding lady crushers. She is our in the field radar for these findings, which is awesome because it's helping us out, and we have enough to do. Um, so we found out that um, Tatiana got second overall, first female at the Cactus Rose in Texas. What a badass! Catherine Short was fourth overall at the Squamish 50k as the first female. Um, then we have Ruth Croft, who just had a crazy season, crushing Le Templier. I'm not saying that correctly. Hillary, correct me, please.
1: <laughs> it was almost like, Le Templier. It's okay. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll just add that she opted out of CCC in kind of like a a last minute fashion because she didn't feel mentally ready to to race again after Western States quite so soon. She was she'd physically done some training, but mentally wasn't in it yet. And I think like, wow, like that really, like it paid off. She had another good one in her and she's had a stellar season and it sounds like she's coming back to Western States heck in 2022. Yeah. So heck yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's so admirable for someone who is that, um, successful in the sport to acknowledge that her mental status is not ready for a race. So that's pretty awesome. And then it paid off for her. Um, and then we also just wanted to give a little shout out to the Zorras national golden trail series championship. So this is a little different than the world championship where United States represented. So Darren Thomas and Janelle Lynx, who crushed at uh, broken arrow, they brought home the gold to the U S which is like the first time that's ever happened for the golden (laughs) trail series. So that is awesome. And they are both like young, aspiring, amazing runners in this field. So super stoked with that.
1: And then I think we should shout out uh our our fearless uh I don't know we'll call him our big brother our fearless leader uh overlord Dylan Bowman went over to Diagonal Defu to race and it was insanely hot like 110 degrees all day rugged terrain it's a slow mean um 100 mile race over there and uh the women's t- I mean I think the women's winning time was like they were out there for like 30 hours or something like it was a nasty nasty race um Emily won that and then the men actually had a tie which I think did you see the video footage of that uh, with Ludo yeah. and Daniel Jung just like finishing like arm <laughs> in arm together it was the bromance the bromance of many many hours out on the trail together
2: <laughs> yeah I mean imagine you go to some dark places if anyone has some extra time you should head on over to Dylan's uh um, <laughs> Dylan's page and see some insight into the suffering that was uh the, that the, that ensued uh for his for his race. Super proud of him though for finishing it out.
1: Yeah. Dylan, I think temporarily decided to retire from hundreds and then within three minutes of finishing the race was like, I'm coming back. So
0: run around the first to first backpack. No just yeah. kidding. And then he'll run it. He'll run
1: it. <laughs> yeah, he'll be back. He that's unfinished business for him. That'll be an yeah. itch that he will have to scratch because our sport is super weird like that. Um but
2: let's go over there and report it. Corinne. I'll yeah. be, I'll be the the co-host in place of Dylan.
1: Yeah. We'll do some live commentary next year, maybe. Um, so part of the reason why we're coming back onto record today for an intro was that we received some really great feedback on episode six, which again was on puberty, body image, and coaching young athletes. And it led to a bunch of really good internal discussions in my household, in our little trail society group, in our DMS. Um, which were, I think really, I don't know, it resonated with me. It was a really important thing to reflect on. Um, and just like in many areas on this show, it's really important for us to acknowledge that when referencing body image here, that we are three white women who are not in big bodies. Okay. And so that we have to recognize that as a privilege when we're talking about this to a degree. And then it's also really important to recognize that regardless of an your size or shape. Um you might not always love the body you're in and that's okay. I think we think of it as black and white that you either love yourself or you hate yourself. But truly like I know that for 48 hours before my period every month, I don't love my body that much. Um and then it goes away and it's you know I'm like oh okay that 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 was hormonal. But that doesn't always happen for people and I think that independent of body size your feelings of discomfort in your body are valid and we don't want we don't want people to feel like based on their size, that the, what they've experienced, be it negative comments from outside people, be it negative comment from coaches, be it your own... When you look in the mirror, those experiences are valid independent of your size and shape. And I think that's really important for us to have be grounded in that idea. So we're going to dive into some nitty gritty stuff, but I'm just wondering, like, how how are you all feeling about, about that, about that as an idea when it comes to body image?
2: Yeah, I mean, it certainly... Uh... It was something I noticed. I mean, not, I think it's all positive, right? That people are trying to say, like, this is obviously in response to um, some other kind of articles that were, uh, you know, present um, this past week. Uh, And so I think... You know, definitely people speaking out about this that, like, you know, coaches or people of authority telling them in their athletic career that they were they were too too big or needed to look a certain way or fit a certain mold, this this idea of one size fits all. I mean, there's been a lot of, you know, um high profile uh athletes in our community posting about this. And one of the main things that I thought when I saw some of these images was like, well, but you're not big to begin with. So there's a problem there because it's like no matter the size or shape, whether it's someone's considered, you know. Know, small or big these are like very loaded words I think um you know it can it can for me send the wrong message if you know we're already kind of critiquing and already like you know a world record or you know best in athletic career performance right and so I think it raises for me it's a bigger issue of okay well we need to stop the narrative of other people and particularly men telling women that they need to fit a certain type to basically match the performances of men um, and like their athletic trajectory. So for me, kind of, that's like where all of this um, I think originates like that's the bottom line for me. Yeah,
1: And I would just like to add Hill, like including like yourself, like people, we, we had responses for people listening to you, to your story about, how you found tennis in high school and and the way you felt about your body, they had that same response to you that that you've had to some of these high profile athletes. Right.
2: -hmm. right? And
1: so I think it's really important to reflect on that. Right. That like independent of how you see yourself, independent of how you see other people, like your words mean something and like it's important for us all to reflect on like what do these things actually mean? And yes, what is the, what is the root of all this as well, Mm -hmm. including people telling you that you don't belong.
2: And I think yeah. that's the root of it. It's this whole idea that, you know, one size, one size fits all. And I feel like we've talked about this briefly before, but maybe there's even more of a pressure, um, for, for women to kind of fit this mold and like also behave a certain way. Um, and I think, you know, as we kind of dive into some numbers, um, later, it's just not the case.
1: Yeah. Keely, what did it bring up for you in particular?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, I I love hearing you guys talk about this because all of these obviously hit really close to home. And I think bringing up the fact that like we can talk to body size from our perspective, but that might not be relevant for other people or very relatable and it might be triggering. Right. And so the thing that this has got me thinking about a lot over the past couple of days is just that regardless of body size, there's always going to be someone out there that thinks that you can be better if you look differently. Like regardless, if I see that person as small enough already or too big already or whatever it is, right? Like there's always going to be someone out there shaming, trying to say they should look differently. And so it it really makes me just think that actually we have no clue what a runner or what an ex athlete should look like at all. And that almost makes me like more excited for the future because clearly nobody really knows. And so we're trying to mold all these people into a size that nobody can define. And there's just so much progress we can make by actually tailoring training to our own unique health and finding like optimal body size, because clearly uh, nobody really knows what they're doing with that.
1: Yeah. It's about, it's about the individual, right? And we're going to talk about spreadsheets here in a second. Um, I think that's a great transition point was that um, news broke in the, I think it was, was it the Oregonian or... Um yep. well, I should make sure that's correct. Um, but essentially news out of University of Oregon. Um, that was super tragic, but at the same time completely unsurprising, which is in itself tragic, right? That we're not surprised when this stuff comes out. Um, it was an Oregon Live, it sounds like. And that so, you know, University of Oregon, probably the most famed track and field and cross country program in the country. I don't know how many NCAA championships they've won in the last, you know, decade or so. Um and the outcry from the community has been palpable as we kind of all just talked about our emotional responses um, to what we've seen and the, the discussions that they, that they have brought up. And so I'm wondering, you know, they quoted a lot of numbers in this article and a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of like, I don't know, it seemed like a total dissociation from actual coaching. And so um, Keely, I know you pulled a bunch of quotes and a bunch of numbers from it. And I'm wondering if you can kind of sum up what um, what was in the article about the University of Oregon? What were they doing with their program there and the athletes there?
0: Yeah. So this was, um, brought forward by six ex-athletes who are remaining anonymous females who used to run for U of O, um, saying that they used to be required to get three DEXA scans a year, um, to look at bad body fat composition. Um, and then if they did not hit a certain level, this level being around 13%, they were required to, uh, add in additional cross training into their regimen to try to hit this, um, body fat percentage ideal. And when the U of O coach, um, was asked about this, um, one of his first quotes was that quote track is nothing but numbers. He says a good mathematician probably could be a good track coach. When we get the numbers from our DEXA scans, we have an Excel spreadsheet that we can plug the numbers into, hit a button, and it gives us a starting value for a training program. It allows us to be cutting edge and innovative in our approach to performance.
1: I just want to call bullshit on all of that, right? Like who coaches like that at any level? That's insane. That is literal insanity. One, there's no, there's like not medically sound. To to give that much dex, there are other ways to measure body fat too, besides like radiation exposure via a DEXA scan. Which like we'd also like I think DEXA scan. I think oh bone density. Like that's why most people get a DEXA scan is to actually look at bone density. Yes, it as a byproduct gives you body fat fat percentage, as in you know knowing how much lean muscle mass you have. But like this is asinine. Like it's just absolutely like I don't know. I'm blown. I was blown away when I heard that quote. Like who is this human coaching like this, like an MBA, like, you know, like someone with a business degree coaching uh, or a finance degree coaching a track team.
0: Oh yeah. And there's been so many, attempts out there to quantify performance and to create this algorithm that will predict performance and train people. And every single time that algorithm has failed. And it always comes back saying that coaches are better than computers. And here we are, someone saying that, no, actually the Excel spreadsheet is the way to go. And, and in defense of him, I will say that I'm sure there's no malintent on his end here, right? Like in his mind, he was trying to optimize for something. Exactly. Yes. So I think we, we, we can't put all the blame on him. He might be uneducated in this way so that he doesn't know he's causing all these harms,
1: but um, unintended consequences of implementing a three time a year DEXA scan, or let's say you could use a bod pod for example, right? Like the school I went to, we used a bod pod for research. I, I took part in exercise physiology and nutrition studies. Um, we used a bod pod. Um, doesn't give you radiation exposure. It's very accurate. Um, it's just like I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just baffled at the the utilization of this. But the unintended consequences of subjecting athletes to this, right, is that it was anxiety provoking. They had athletes starving themselves, trying like leading into a dexa scan um, for the hopes that somehow their numbers would like magically equate to the correct thing. And I just think I was reading to this article. Uh, with my jaw on the floor because we've been talking about red S. Um, and one of the things we know that happens when you're in this like chronic, um, like caloric deficit, state of deficit, um, particularly in women because of like how our hormones work in relationship to that, like you go into a state of starvation, right? And so, actually, a lot of women who have become amenorrheic and are in this kind of chronic caloric deficit your body comp actually changes in different ways. You normally aren't just like getting leaner and getting super shredded. You're like putting, you're putting on more body fat. Your body's like, we are starving. We have to conserve energy. How are we ever going to have a baby in this state? Like, it's kind of like, that's what, that's what women's bodies do. And so it's it's so, it like these women are starving themselves or freaking out, like their cortisol is probably through the roof. So that's like also probably not helping the situation. So it's like, at no point would doing this elicit anything that the coaches are trying to do, you know, quote unquote, by using a DEXA scan to implement this like change in body fat percentage, which is like a total, totally arbitrary selected number to begin with. Like, I'm just, I'm baffled. And then like, what, like Keely, I don't know if you pulled some more research and some more numbers too. Like what, like, they pulled, they decided 13% in this article, which is like below recommended levels for an athlete to begin with a female athlete, 14 to 20%, I think is more standard, um, which is a, like, which is a narrow, but you know, it it's, it's a range, for example, like where, where did this value come from? And then what research did you see? Was there anything that supported this? Cause it's in my mind does not seem to be the case
0: yeah, I was talking to the, my PT about this this morning, Matt Walsh here in Portland, and he is fired up about this issue as well. And I've been trolling the internet for papers on body fat percentage of female Olympic athletes, and I find not very many, right? So I found some that have given ranges um, where the mean is around thirteen or fourteen percent body fat, but with the standard deviation of between three and like five percent. So we're looking at a very, very large range for even these high level performing Olympic runner, Female athletes, right? And so I don't know where he got this this exact number of thirteen from. What I do know is that when you look into a lot of research around eating disorders, and I do want to preface this: this might be triggering for some people. So if you do find yourself triggered by numbers around body fat percentage and eating disorders, um, feel free to skip ahead to the rest of the podcast. But looking into articles around anorexia and different eating disorders, um, normal body fat percentages for those kind of women also hover around 13% with a similar standard deviation. And so that's clearly not a healthy number and it's not not healthy for everyone, clearly. Some people are gonna be okay with that. But for the instance, one of the the parts of the article that broke my heart was the girl who was was not even at 13% body fat. She was at 16% body fat and didn't get her period. And, And we're females, we're lucky. We get our period to tell us if we're healthy, if we're able to have children. And at 16% body fat, which is still a very low body fat percentage. She wasn't having hers and was told to get down to 13, which is just, it breaks my heart because that is just the most detrimental thing you could have
1: someone do to themselves at that level. Because what they added on top of that, right, was additional exercise and continued caloric restriction. So she's already in a, like the reason, like the, the primary reason why this person isn't getting their period is not, is not their body fat percentage. It's, it's being in a caloric deficit. They've taken women post gastric bypass surgery, so they're gonna have high. They're gonna have a high body fat percentage, generally speaking, um, because they're doing this weight reduction surgery. Um, all of a sudden, their stomachs get shrunk immensely in that surgery, and they lose their periods because their caloric deficit is so huge post surgery, and hence, like why it generally causes weight loss. Um, so this woman, this woman who has at sixteen percent not menstruating, they're telling her to lose more body fat they're increasing her exercise by adding in additional cross training and they're continuing caloric restriction. So the likelihood is that that wasn't going to one, she was not going to get her period back. And two, she was going to end up in this like continued, like continued turmoil and like downstream, just like continuous, del- like deleterious downstream effects, both on her mental health, her general physical health and her performance. Like no- nothing was going to improve in that situation.
2: And I think this also like this, all of the numbers that you quoted Keely with, with that huge distribution from that 13, 13 13.7%, right. Four to 6% on either side, right. Of body fat percentage that just goes to the point that there's no one size fits all for body composition for all and of high this. performance yeah exactly body composition high performance and that to me is really interesting and I'm, and I'm curious actually if there's like are those those same studies with men right now i'd argue i mean it does the same you know distribution of body composition exist for them No, I would imagine not. And so for women, if we're looking to coaching and, you know, for high performance athletes, but also for getting women into sport and developing, you need like the presence of a coach because it's not one size fits all from strictly like, okay, you meet these statistical numbers and then you perform well, like it doesn't work that way.
0: Absolutely. And they're leading with these numbers instead of letting the athlete find this number on their own. Right. And, and one of the athletes was very self-aware in this, in this paper to call out that they were not 30 plus year old Olympic level athletes, right? They didn't have access to a nutritionist, to a ton of organic food. They weren't getting a ton of sleep, right? They're college students that are, that are, that are navigating a changing body. And all of a sudden a huge increase in training load and an increase in academic load. Right. And so all of these other papers and all these other numbers are based off women who are well far away from their college career. And so, yeah, that's, that's pretty shocking too. And to your point, uh, Hillary, they're actually in that same paper I quoted showed the male, um, range and the body fat percentage difference across those male elite Olympic runners was only around 1% of difference. So much narrower window for, for the male athletes. Another
2: point is like, you know, you can't train women the same way you train men
1: yeah the al- exactly. the algorithm is not gonna work it's not it's not your friend avoid the algorithm view athletes as humans as whole humans um to find long-term success like what this a is- concept what wow a concept. we're groundbreaking over here on trail society today um but yeah I just think I think it was really disheartening I think that you know it's another another collegiate program, another, you know, hearing of coaches, you know, putting athletes in this position where, where, cause culturally, right. Like, I think if you, I don't know of the hundreds of metrics you could choose from, like why this be your one, right. Like of all the metrics, like why, why just this one to lead with, like, there are so many other metrics that have, that have value in, in high performance. You know, we think of lactate threshold, we think of VO2 max, we think of, um, there's all sorts of like kind of max, max velocity, terminal velocities or maximum velocities at s- specific levels um, that would like be so much more impactful, maybe when it comes to like setting up a training program for these athletes. Um, but I'm just, yeah, I'm kind of at, at, at a loss for um, why this was the the leading factor for this coach.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I think what's kind of sad is just how they're optimizing for this one number, right? They're not optimizing for these other things first, and then finding this number later. And what's sad about that is if you're just optimizing for body fat percentage, like that, that alone can just negatively impact performance, which is what these people want to increase anyways. And so they're targeting something that potentially can really decrease performance. And so it's the exact opposite of what they're going after.
1: Yeah. And I I think, I mean, obviously this is a a college program with a lot of resources at their fingertips. Um, But I think that, you know, there's one thing to talk about performance with a a high performing athlete at at an Olympic level, at a collegiate level. Um, But you have to set them up with resources, right? You can't just say, oh, you need to lose weight or, oh, you need to drop your body comp to this without giving the athlete the resources necessary, the, the, you know, the psychologist and the nutrition, I mean, the nutritionist that was working with these athletes too, seemed to be more of a pawn of the coach than a actual consulting nutritionist. So I think that it's, it's like, you know, you can, you can talk about tweaking for high performance in a more holistic setting that I think ultimately benefits the athlete long-term. And that's not the strategy that was implemented here and in a lot of college programs in general. Totally. Yeah. And I think if they optimize for having
0: even just their team, like even just the four-year long-term length of their team, right. The lifespan of their team, if they just optimize to have the freshmen really good as seniors, their whole approach would be different too. And like why coaches just don't have the patience to just work with these athletes to build them to probably be better than they're going to be. Otherwise, if they just wait and are patient,
1: like not motto, but it's like, the coaches retain their salary and retain their position for went from winning NCAA championships it's performance it's the throw the dozen eggs against the wall and one's not going to break and that's your champion philosophy and that's not and, and I know as when I was in high school when I was looking at who was I going to ski for collegiately that was something I took into consideration was this coach a holistic coach did they think about my long-term development were they excited for me to ski post collegiately or were they going to produce NCAA champions who you know, lost at you know, or otherwise lost at all costs. and so that like that to me, is an important an important representation of is it a is it a good collegiate program or not? Does anyone have anything to add to that?
2: Well, I just think it's important for when like just for coaching, at least, and I'm not coaching, the majority of women that I coach are are adults, right? They've already had their collegiate experience, their you know development into sport. The coolest thing is that a lot of, Women athletes that I coach—they found this later in life, right? But there's still this huge stigma around eating and and fueling during for for performance. And I have to have like these sit down conversations with them and say like it's not one size fits all. If your body is telling you that you're hungry, you need to eat. And the best way to recover, the best way to get better at running is to fuel while you're running and eat literally as much as possible until, you know, your body gives you, your body's smart. It knows what to do really all this other bullshit that gets in the way. Sorry, but it is, it's like all this other noise that gets in the way that tells us that we have to, that we need to kind of like eat less. And I mean, I always use myself as an example. It's like, well, you know, like, Usually the guys that I like look at the guys. The guys that can train, they eat a lot. I eat as much as them, or at least I try to. <laughs> and I, you know, like after like post run, and so hey, like my body is, you know, it it's doing what it's supposed to. It's you know maintaining weight, and I mean it, it's it's kind of you know you have to you have to let let your own body kind of take the wheel and ignore that other noise that people have been you know feeding to these women their entire lives.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's really really powerful. So we're never going to under eat our community. We're always going to maybe almost overeat, but, and that's okay because fuel, fuel is, you know, food is fuel for our endeavors. It's how we keep our bodies healthy and by healthy, I mean working and functioning and allowing us to traverse mountain ranges. Um, you can't do that without a lot of snacks. So we hope that this was okay for y'all that our our long, our long intro, um, was a good way to talk about how the community is handling this news um but continue to slide into our DMs like your messages are what's kind of creating these conversations creating whole episode themes which is really really cool that we're you know trying to address those as much as we can so let us know what what actionable changes can our community do to to help you know our sport long term for long term health and success as as we continue to hear programs going through these you know these these major major issues so we're going to drop you back into your regularly programmed episode we we hope you enjoy episode seven thanks guys Woo-hoo. <laughs> hi hello welcome back to trail society i am corinne malcolm i'm keely henninger and i'm hillary allen So today we're going to build off of our last episode where we discussed coaching young athletes and the role that both coach and community mentors can play in helping an athlete go through puberty, which can be an awkward and uncomfortable time for many of us. And so the potential outcomes of that, though, for athletes is can be both intentional and unintentional. And in sports like ultra running, it's really quite common that you can fall into this energy trap, this negative energy trap. Um, and you've probably heard this word thrown around in the media, thrown around on, I don't know, I run far, Twitter, if you're reading scientific journals, is is red S. And so I'm wondering if we to get started today, if we could just start by defining red S.
3: Sure, who wants to take that one on? <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people might be scratching their heads right now, at least uh, up until recently, I probably would have been because I think a lot of people maybe originally learned about this as called the female athlete triad. However, um, a paper released by the International Olympic Committee back in like 2018 decided to call this Red S, which actually means relative energy deficiency in sport. And um, it's been expanded to be called this to include a lot more negative downstream effects of um, the female athlete triad. The female athlete triad was originally just encompassing the lack of menstruation, low energy availability, and impaired bone health. Um, And this kind of encompasses a lot more of the negative impacts that the low energy availability end of the female athlete triad has. Um, So things like metabolic rate, um, immunity, protein synthesis, cardiovascular health, all these things can be impaired negatively by this low energy state that you, you get into during
1: this, this syndrome. Yeah, I think it's important too that one of the things that they set out to do was they wanted they recognized that this was also prevalent in male athletes and to include them in this, that the female athlete triad, yes, was very much geared towards women, but that red reds or red S um, can, can affect both genders. I think women are impaired more so by it or more quickly. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a little bit. But one of the things that you mentioned there was energy availability. And I think that's really important to address. Like what, what does that mean? Right. Most of us are thinking, Oh, disordered eating or an eating disorder, but it's so much more than that. So I'm wondering if y'all can define what energy availability actually means.
2: Yeah. So I'll take that one. Uh, so energy availability, and this is something that, you know, I've, I've kind of learned in real time. Um, but it's not, it's, it's basically energy left over um, for normal, phys- uh, physiological functioning after accounting for the energy that you expend during exercise. Um, and so when we talk about, obviously that's different from, from male to female, but typically females need, um, about more, more than 45 kilocal kilocalories per kilogram of lean mass per day. And so if you get below 30, um, that's where en- energy deficiency can begin. And of course that's just, um, that's that's relative right it depends for for everyone but um i think most people bin this into you know disordered eating um But that can also be kind of, you know, a a lack of knowledge or unintentional restriction of calories, right? Um, This is what we talked about in our last episode. There's social pressures to fit a certain body norm, um, perfectionism. And so you think if, you know, my, like I talked about, um, you know, comparing myself to my sister and, you know, we're in the same gene, gene pool. So shouldn't we need the same the same amount of energy. Right. And so you can kind of get into this weird comparison where everyone's body is different. And especially when we're talking about this lean mass, the amount of muscle that you have, um, you know, that's where your glycogen stores are. We'll get into that later, but, um, this whole idea of energy, energy availability, um, since we're accounting for all of the energy that your body needs to just function. And that's actually quite a lot. Um, especially if you're training at a high volume and you're burning a lot of that, that energy already.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause I guess one thing we want to emphasize here is that, um, the, what, what people normally see as recommendations for calories per day does not pertain to athletes. That's not accounting for something you need because you've gone on a two hour run as well. Right. So when people are like, oh, you need to eat 1500 or 2000 or 2,500 calories, they're just throwing out arbitrary numbers based off of weight and sex that, um, are not indicative of the kind of energy you're putting your body through in that day. And so this, this kind of equation is really it's like twofold, right? You're having this like resting energy expenditure, which is like the energy you need to live. And then you also have this large energy need for all of the activity you're putting your body through. And so that's kind of what they're accounting for here. Um, and, and and they don't actually have male recommendations yet, which is kind of showing that the males are way behind in research compared to the females here, because they don't even have a true recommendation for males yet.
1: Which is so bizarre. It's very, like, that doesn't, that does not happen very often in in any research, but specifically in exercise physiology research because it's been predominantly male-heavy for so long. So that's kind of, I mean, I feel bad, but it's kind of cool that, like, we have recommendations for women on this right now, but we do not yet to have them on males. And I think that, I, I, I don't think this is a tangent, I think this is important. So we mentioned, you know, this could be from disordered eating, but it could be from unintentional, like, just not meeting your needs, right? Like, you go out for long runs on the weekends, and you got a Monday rest day and it's like, Oh, I don't need to eat as much today. Cause I'm not exercising. Well, you're still in caloric deficit from what you did over the weekend. And I think Keely, I think that this kind of, we both, we both have gone through stress fractures. I know we're jumping the gun. We're going to talk about what the outcomes are here, but I think that's important to bring up is that like, you know, you're a person, you're a role model in the sport. You're a person that I look up to both on the science side of things and the running side of things. And you kind of found yourself in that position where you had this mismatch of your caloric needs that was like, just like not something that you had thought about. So I'm curious if you could just, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience before we dive into like, what are all the other negative outcomes of, of being in this state?
3: Totally. Yeah. So back in 2019, um, coming off of like a year of excessive racing and, and very good racing, but also way too much. Um, I had a sacral stress fracture, which can sometimes be from biomechanical deficiencies, Um, in my case and in some common cases for female distance runners, can be due to energy deficiency. Um, And I don't know if this happened to you guys, but I found myself very unaware of this state or at least very much in denial of the state for for years, right? And so you're, you're kind of able to trick yourself while you're in this energy deficient state for a while because your body's not quite to its maximum depletion level for a while. And so I feel like it was like this ticking time bomb for me, where I just kept pushing myself into this energy deficient state for a really long time. And the kind of the accumulation of that was the stress fracture, um, preceded by a lot of times where I absolutely hated running. I had no desire to do it. I didn't look forward to any of it. I was kind of in a performance plateau. I wasn't sleeping well. I thought that was kind of normal. I didn't enjoy eating. I also thought that was normal. Like there were just so many mental like nuances in my life that I became um, okay with being normal. But after the fact, and I guess like years removed from that incident, I realized like that wasn't normal. Like the way that energy deficiency was manifesting for me was like all encompassing. And it just, I'm so happy that I had the stress fracture to tell me that I'd gone way too far down that hole, but yeah, it, it was, it was crazy.
1: It's hard when you like have always seen yourself as really, durable. And then suddenly you have this issue where it's like, Oh, just kidding. You're not, you're not durable. But I think that's, I think that's a really like good example of how our sport is really demanding and really hard. And looking back on that now, you like, you're like, Oh, red flag. Oh, another red flag. Oh, another red flag. And I think that, you know, we're hoping that in sharing some of this, y'all can recognize those red flags in yourself or in other people. And, and you can, we can get to them before, you know, you end up having to take eight weeks off, 12 weeks off a season off due to like a major, you know, big bone stress fracture. Cause that is totally. not not the outcome that any of us look forward to. Um, yeah. And I think, sport.
3: I think we're all in this sport because we like to suffer and we don't want to be like really like soft with things. And so I think when everything feels harder or you're not getting your period. And there's all these things that might make you seem soft. Like you just swallow that, right? You don't, you don't talk about it. You don't admit it as a defeat and you just kind of suffer through. And in this sport, like that's not what we should do because we already put our body through enough as it is doing these races that we need to be doing everything in our ability to support it when it's not doing those crazy things that we can and not making our entire being, our our entire being, being this suffer fest.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think we'll talk more too about like things that you you can do to combat this down the road. And I think that the emotional side of things, we want to definitely, you know, there'll be the the nutritional recommendations, the recovery recommendations, but also like, hey, you're a human recommendation. So I think that obviously stress fractures, right? That's a big, that's a big issue when all of a sudden you're, you've got this hormonal dysregulation going on, you're going to have issues with your bone health. And so I'm wondering if you all can walk us through, you know, what happens physiologically when you're in this prolonged state of low energy availability?
3: Yeah. So we know that during this prolonged, um, time of stress that it could potentially reduce the hypothalamic release of the gonadotropin releasing hormone, which actually impairs your inter- anterior pituitary to release gonadotropins, which are your sex hormones. Right. And so this can result in for females Your FSH and LH, which we'll talk to later in more detail, but they are two hormones that are crucial in your menstrual cycle. So your monthly regulation of your hormones and the the pulsatility of those go down, which which basically renders you unable to have the menstrual cycle because you're not going to be going through the corpus luteum degradation that you need to do in order to elicit the bleeding that happens every month. And then ultimately the downstream effect of having these two hormones pulsing very low levels is that your estrogen level will also go down. Um,
1: Which I was going to say why, like, so why, like in lay terms here, right? Like those are a lot of really big (laughs) words. Like, what is that? What does that mean? Right. And like keying into that estrogen component there, what does that mean for people?
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. So if you're losing the level, if you're, if your estrogen levels are low, you're going to stop getting a period because your body is basically telling you, Hey, I do not have enough energy right now. I do not have enough calories to deal with being pregnant and having a child. I cannot deal with that right now because I have to deal with all of this other stress that you're putting me through. And so all of these hormones that are typically circulating on a very regular timetable are stopping the circulating because your body just can't handle that.
2: And then yeah. Keely, how's that related to potentially bone health?
3: Yeah. So then that's related to bone health because the downstream regulator of estrogen is something that actually um allows calcium to be reabsorbed from the bones. And so when your estrogen goes down, calcium's being reabsorbed.
1: This this decrease in estrogen is gonna impact impact bone health yes. dramatically. Right. That's when you're at this heightened risk for this. And this can also be, you know, not only times of stress, but I think Hilly and I have talked about this on the air and off the air a little bit is that right. Your body's goal is to keep you alive (laughs) and when it doesn't have enough energy to do its normal functions like healing. So Hillary has mentioned that she lost, you know, had irregular menstrual cycles when she was recovering from major injury. And it's because your, your body's investing energy elsewhere too. Right. So like as women, we have this great red flag that says, Hey, something's not right here. So we need to check in. So what, what else is going on beyond, um, influences on the menstrual cycle and influences on, uh, with estrogen and bone health.
2: Yeah. So another thing, um, and this is also related to, to all this is that cortisol is heightened, right? And so we all know that, um, increased cortisol levels is related to high stress. I think this is, um, you know, we've seen this in the buzzword of like the state of adrenal fatigue or this kind of thing, but cortisol levels that are heightened also have implications for, um, for bone health as well. Um, again, that calcium reabsorption, um, doesn't happen as efficiently. Um, and so also there's, uh, impaired thyroid signaling pathways, um, and we've talked about this with you know hypothyroidism kind of in previous episodes um but specifically when we're talking about the TUEs and um things necessary to compete in these uh in these events when and that's actually common in uh, you know older women if they have you know problems in, in thyroid signaling. This is something that is related to how you regulate your metabolism. So there's all of these downstream effectors that, that happen, um, in the body, um, you know, growth hormones, insulin, um, you know, growth factors, It impacts your sympathetic and parasympathetic, um, nervous system. So basically your, you know, your rest and digest, um, just your baseline in your, in the human body, um, immunity. I mean, we're, we're talking about all of these things, protein synthesis, like when we're talking about running, well, would you go on a hard run? I think of, especially like, you know, a long endurance run. And if you're training for, you know, a hilly mountain run and you're, you know, going downhill, um, there's probably, I mean, have you ever been sore, right? Your muscles, there's some repair that needs to happen. So, um, that repair post-exercise can be, Um, impaired. Um, That's what I'm talking about. Protein synthesis, like in your actual muscles to repair the tissue damage that happened. Um, And so kind of like recovery.
1: Um, Yeah. Impaired recovery in particular, right? So it's hard to recover from the workouts you're doing. You're going to feel sore a lot, Mm -hmm. you know, unusually sore potentially because you're not Mm -hmm. recovering from smaller efforts. So these are Mm -hmm. all red flags, right? Your body's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm.
3: But typically nobody really notices any of these other things because they're just kind of associating them to their training stress and i think for most people the first warning sign is the bone stress injury right because that's the first yeah. time they have to go see their doctor that's when they're finally confronted with all of these small things that they were they were pushing under the rug um and i mean for me it wasn't a big red flag for me to miss my period so even though we have this lovely signal some girls don't listen to it it's 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 sadly the accumulation of all of these things to the bone stress injury that typically brings them to the doctor's office.
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. I do think it's, I think, you know, that's something that we'll stress later too, is that like, it that should not be normal. Like being amenorrheic is not normal. There are people, right. If you're on a, if you're on a, like, if you're on Mirena, a hormonal progesterone hormonal IUD, like there are like 20% of women lose the quote, unquote, lose the bleeding portion of their periods. I want I want to qualify that there. You are losing the bleeding portion of your cycle because you are not you don't have a uterine lining to shed anymore because that is the effect of local progesterone on the uterus. However, you should still be having a normal hormonal fluctuation cycle. And so it if you are on something like Mirena and I've had I've had athletes actually come off Mirena um, because they needed to be able to tell if they're getting their period or not because they were like because they were in the 20% of women who were losing their period. So you should be listening to that signal if you have it. Obviously, we're all in birth control for ver- you know for various reasons. and um, that that is kind of like it's a po- people see it as a positive side effect. It's not as annoying to be bleeding every month. but um, you know if if you don't have that signal to say, hey, you're getting your normal cycle because you're no longer bleeding like that that becomes that becomes hard. And I do know athletes who have like specifically gone through hormonal testing, during, during certain months, just to, to check in, to see that they are getting that fluctuation in those hormones because they are on Mirena and they don't, they don't bleed every month. So that, that shouldn't be the, it, we shouldn't have to get to a stress fracture is what I'm trying to say. Right. Can, is that, is that reasonable?
3: Totally. But you've been in an energy deficient state before, Corinne, haven't you? Like with skiing and everything, but you never had the stress fracture from it. So did you have other symptoms I was, of overtraining?
1: I was never amenorrheic either. Mm. Um, so I've got a question Okay. because
2: no, I mean, I trust you obviously, but, (laughs) um, but for like amenorrheic, um, I think I mentioned something, uh, in the last episode that, you know, um, and there's a word to it, right. But uh, when your period is, it seems like a good symptom when your period is shorter in duration and kind of, um, like heaviness, right. This can seem, this is also a, a, a symptom that I've learned that can be some sort of disruption to the actual menstrual cycle.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I think it depends on what your normal, what your normal cycle is, right? Like some, some people have heavy periods and people have light periods and people have long, long periods and people have short periods. Like that there's like a natural cycle there too, um, that you've probably been aware of since you're like, Oh, I need this many tampons or this, this, like I need to empty my menstrual cup or whatever it might be. Right. Like, I think we're all acutely aware of how much we bleed, um, most months. Um, and I, I know that I've only I, when I travel to Europe for extended period of time, oftentimes my, I'll get two periods in a, like in a short period of time, and then it'll skip a month potentially because time changes are a big stressor on the body. So it's not, it's, that is not uncommon. That's happened to me twice. Like when I go to Europe to ski race for the winter, cause we were over there for four or five months at a time coming back to the U S that would happen. Um, so we are going to talk about this more. I, we can talk about this right now too, is that there has been research kind of looking into. There's no good diagnostic tool really for red S or for overtraining syndrome, right? There's no good diagnostic tool out there that says you have this or you have that. Generally, both of them are diagnosed via, um, I would say, OTS in particular is a diagnosis of exclusion, i.e. you have been tested for everything else and nothing else lines up right? You're, you're not anemic. You don't have mono. You don't have any other underlying infections. You don't have any other food. You don't have a food allergy. You don't have limes, all those things, right? It's all been ticked off and you're still experiencing these symptoms, which are very similar to, um, to red S. And there's actually a paper, um, by Trent Stellingworth on this that came out not that long ago. Um, that kind of was a, was a, a review of the literature between those two things and, and trying to actually differentiate between the two is very, very hard. And so kind of the recommendation there too would be like, okay, what can we, what can we pull out? So you can do like hormonal testing, right. And see if there's, if there's an issue there. I know of athletes who have done that recently and then um, have gone in and met with a really good sports med doc, like Emily Kraus, who we'll talk about in a little bit um, to say, Hey, like what is going on here? So I think there are ways to potentially leave, el- el- like, you know, eliminate, is it reds or is it OTS, but Trent's general take from it was that the likelihood is that a lot of athletes aren't overtrained is that they have red S. And so, yes, that is, that is very prevalent. I was, I feel like my, my ski background of being super overtrained was high, high training stress, high life stress, um, under recovery for sure. And kind of being, you know, non-functionally overreached for a long, long, long time. And I had all the symptoms that overlap, except I was never, never amenorrheic. Um, and have never intentionally at least had disordered eating. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think in ultra running, it's a lot, a lot harder. And, And some of you know that I am, I'm currently recovering from, um, several pelvic stress reactions. Um, and you could say, Hey, that's a big red flag, right? You've got a big bone injury there. Um, but talking to my doctors and doing bone tests, it seems like I somehow got lucky in the sense that it's biomechanical. Um, but it's been a really long, hard recovery, and it did—it totally made me second guess everything. Right, I had to go back and say, "Am I eating enough? Have I been fueling enough? Was racing or efforts too hard?" Right, like I think it's important to go to the drawing board there and be and be willing to have an open discussion with your coaches, with your medical support staff, whoever that is. Right, like the three of us are not doctors, um, so it's important to have those people in your corner. But I know, um, actually, why don't we talk about this right now, Keely, I know that you had a really hard time. Figuring out what was going on with with within the medical system. Do you want to share that a little bit, and then we can dive into kind of some other some other papers that we pulled.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like before I had my stress fracture, I was I always I just kind of thought I was always sick or something was wrong. So I would go to physicians and I would say like I'm not getting my period and I have all these issues with like my GI tract and I feel super out of it all the time and like I feel really tired and I have all these things and. I would talk to it in relation to performance. Right. And, and a lot of the doctors that I saw initially were, were general primary care physicians who, who have crazy workloads. Right. So there's really nothing against them right now. They're not trained in special, like in sports medication. Um, However, like going to them, they, they kind of had no clue what was going on. So they, to me, to them, I was just this healthy younger white girl who was complaining about stuff that they did not have the time of day for because they see so many patients in a day and they see really sick patients in a day that are that is very easy for them to diagnose right away like this person has type 2 diabetes this person has cardiac failure whatever it is it's very much it's a lot more obvious than what I was presenting with um so for a couple of them I was turned away um as just really nothing they just would say so i don't stop, think you have anything stop running on. yeah Maybe <laughs> i think you're some. okay um one was googling in front of me and read me the Google sheet, um, about PCOS, um, which I don't have, um, because <laughs> they were like, well, you have, you know, testosterone is a little elevated and your estrogen is low. Um, but you don't have any of these other symptoms, but this maybe is what you have because Google says this. So maybe does that make you feel better? And so I just, I left and, and, you know, finally I came to a doctor who actually wanted me to get on a thyroid medication because my thyroid was so low. And luckily at the time, like I had a lot of people to talk to and realized that that was not a good idea. And at the end of the day, I started working with a nutritionist through goo and was just walking her through my results. And, and she's the one who helped me the most, just realizing like, Hey, you're trying to eat enough and you're trying to feel right. But like, you're not. And she obviously said it in like kind of a harsh, but also a really lovely way. Um, And it just took like that kind of a sports, very sports specific, Um, like opinion for them to be like, Hey, this is what you're doing wrong. And then obviously like fast forward a couple of years, I feel like it took forever to start getting like the energy deficiency in line. Um, and yeah, it can be be chronic. It can be,
1: it can be Mm -hmm. chronic and it can be at very low levels for a long time. And, T- t- testing things like estradiol, they'll oftentimes test, test that. So and they'll look at sex hormones to mm-hmm. kind of see if that's going on there, but it can be akin to, so I, you know, Amelia Boone, man, we're just going to keep shouting you out here too. Um, you know, I think she was very frustrated that as she was working on herself, as she was working on getting this, this like eating disorder under control, that she was still getting injured. She's still having bone stress injuries. And she's like, I'm doing everything right. Why does my body, why is my body failing me? And it's like, well, you are doing it right now, but it's got decades of doing it wrong on it. And so it's one of those things where it's like, identifying this can take a long time and recovering from it. There's no, there's no timeline, right? Same with OTS. There's no one timeline as far as how do you recover from this? How Does it mean complete rest? Does it mean, you know, uh, Change, changing up training some using the bike. Remember that switching from running to the bike though is like the still metabol- metabolically taxing, right? And if you've got a metabolic injury, which I think red ass qualifies as, right? Mm-hmm. Like you might not have a physical injury, but you sure as heck have a metabolic injury because your mm-hmm. body like biochemically isn't functioning, right? Like treating it appropriately and finding finding guidance there, I think is super hard, but as more people Recognize what they're struggling with and kind of come out with their own journeys. I think I'm hoping that will help help guide people because right now I think it's really the wild west a little bit.
2: And to add with all of this that we're talking about, we've talked about a lot of you know downstream effectors. Like you mentioned, doctors can recommend thyroid medication, and I think that can be overprescribed. But really, the one common thread that all of these things have is diet. It's enough calories because that can influence all of these downstream effectors. And I mean, I've coached some women who are recovering from eating disorders, right. And they've talked with their doctors and they're still trying a year later to get a normal menstrual cycle back, right. It'll come and go, but this is also something that's, you know, I have to be cognizant of as a coach, like not prescribing them too much exercise or running because they're still, their body is still in an energy deficit. And so you can fix things, you know, on, if you increase calorie intake per day, you can get your period back that, you know, even that quickly that month. But still, if you've been kind of on that low end of energy availability for, you know, years, it can take that long to repair the bone damage that has happened because it's like a leaky pipe, right? It's something if it's like a slow leak over time, but there's still damage there and you need, you know, months, if not years um, of basically repairing to get that baseline back again.
1: Yeah. So evaluating, evaluating like bone density is definitely, and then there's some, there's some blood markers that doctors can look at too, for with bone injuries to kind of see if there's like, if there's something there, um, which can kind of steer you towards like, oh, it is, it is this bio, 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 biochemical versus biomechanical Mm -hmm. issue. Right. And that can help steer that can help guide how recovery needs to be done. Is it is it rest? Is it PT? Is it nutrition? Is it a combination of all those things? Um, And it's really important to note too, that like, I think a lot of us think, you know, well, I'm maybe I'm like, I'm heavier. I'm overweight. Like I can't, this can't affect me. Right. Cause like, I think we associate like low BMI or being really, really thin with this stuff, but it's really important to note that that doesn't matter here. Right. It's you can, you can have a caloric deficit at any size, at any shape, and you can end up with that caloric deficit being so big that your body cannot, you know, is going to start shutting things down to keep you alive.
3: Totally. And just when Hillary was talking through symptoms, like there is very high effects from this on your metabolic system. So that can impact your body's ability to store muscle as well as store fat. So you can get to a point where your body's not able to make muscle anymore and it's actually storing more fat. And so the the look at just a holistic body as well as like a BMI calculation is not going to be necessarily indicative of someone having this this low energy availability at all
1: yeah or being a risk a risk factor for it and you're right that, that one of the symptoms of this too is that you can actually see a, a shift in um in what am I what am I going to say here a shift in body composition um like that, like maybe you've been a lean athlete and suddenly you're, you're noticing that you're gaining weight or your body just doesn't look the same. Um, that, that can actually be a symptom of this. And then all of a sudden it's counterintuitive, right? You're like, well, I need to eat less, right? Like I don't, I don't look how I, how I feel like I should look, I need to eat less. And that's just like this vicious cycle where instead of like eating more would actually be much, much more beneficial to both performance, general health, and maybe body Mm -hmm. comp, if that is something that is important to you and your sport. So, mm-hmm. I think that that is a very interesting component of it and I think one thing to tie back into here that's important is that we mentioned a paper that was done by Shear and Tiller and a bunch of other guys who are all um exercise um, physiologists and physicians. It's actually a really interesting group of people who kind of all came from their own areas of expertise a little bit to write a paper about the health were there potential negative health impacts of ultra running on the sport? And in it, it talks about female athletes specifically, and it kind of says, you know, we don't under, right, like quite understand this, but you know, it does seem that that females are at a higher risk to be impacted by red S and to, and and therefore also to end up reporting having stress fractures. We know this impacts both males and females, but women, because of our more delicate like hormonal mm. like hormonal cycle seem to be impacted by red us more not not like maybe in the long term but in like they get impacted quicker. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and I think it's more it's 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 more recorded for women, right? Because they have this warning sign and so I think unlike males who who don't uh, don't they don't have this little like warning flashing sign um they're going to see it quicker or at least they're going to be more aware of it than males.
2: Yeah. And- I can go from like a personal anecdote as well. It's like, I can, I can notice if I'm in a high, if I'm in a high volume training cycle that my period can be shifted. And so, you know, that to me is indicative, oh, okay, well, like my body is working very hard and, you know, like Corinne mentioned, it can be more a delicate cycle because, you know, our body and our, our menstrual cycle is, is, is primed for us to, you know, have a huge energy expenditure, which would be to have a baby. And so, you know, if that is shut down, you know, kind of on the, we're built it for it to be shut down on the acute level. Um, and I've noticed that even in my, you know, if I'm doing kind of too much and I'm like, okay, this is where you need to rein it back. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. Brilliant. And I think
3: that's like really good to note for recovery, right. Too, is that like when I, when I got my published stress, stress fracture initially, no one really attributed it to red S. Um, I just kind of was coming to that realization on my own. And so my doctor and my PT were all really stoked for me to start cross training right away. Right. So I think I took seven days off and then was right back on the bike. But during this whole time, like for the next month, I still never got my period um, and was still feeling really fatigued on the bike, but just kind of was looking over it and then tried to push back for this one race and, and realized I just wasn't ready and I still wasn't getting my period. So I finally just stopped. I just took a month off and. And slowly started building back my menstrual cycle. And then a couple of months later, got it, missed a month, got it again, and then slowly started getting it every month. And it takes forever. But yeah, that's really good to, to, to watch, right? For females is that it's an indicator if we're doing too much. And so we should really try to keep it.
2: But I also wanted to say too, it's like, this is something, so, I mean, Keely, when we were talking about on our last episode about girls and the developing and, you know, going through puberty and all of this stuff, like I started puberty a bit later. Um, and I know you mentioned that you did as well. And that was something that I noticed. I was a very active kid. I was doing tennis and cross country and all these different sports. And when I started my period, when I was 16, it would do that. It would kind of like, you know, leap every, you know, two, three months, um, you know, I'd have it. And then I wouldn't, when I was in the summer and super active. Um, so that can also be, um, you know, something to know yourself, right. And, and also your history. My mother has a history of, um, amenorrhea, um, when she was in the Peace Corps. And so, you know, like all of these things, family history can also relate to this as well. So it's also just, I think it's a cool metronome that we women have. Um, so it's a good thing to kind of keep track of.
1: Yeah. So I think, kind of the next step here is how like how common or prevalent is this in in the general population in, in our sport et etc
3: Yeah I mean I think the numbers are drastically subdued right in for both females and males um, under
1: underreported more than likely
3: right yeah, totally. And so I mean there was one study reported by the Australian Institute of Sport Australia is doing pretty cool work in this space. they do a ton with their female athletes. Um, they interviewed basically 112 female elite and sub-elite athletes from five different sports and showed that at least that 80% had at least one indicator of red S and 40% were showing two to three. And they measured these factors in a multitude of ways. They had some lab tests, some self-reported tests, um, and some menstrual cycle tests. Um and yeah, so that was a pretty shocking stat for me. Um, and then I guess what do you guys think in terms of like prevalence of sports? Because I only see studies around like body, um, sports that emphasize a certain body type, but I would wager that they're also pretty prevalent in other sports.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if the numbers are way underreported and in, in a multitude of sports, right. Really. in anyone who's, who's athletic because you still have those energy demands. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that we do see it mostly in like endurance sports or being reported in endurance sports and being reported in body like body leanness sports or, you know, so things like gymnastics, uh, ballet, um, diving things, you know, you're wearing, you know, you're wearing a leotard type things, but I bet that it's in ball sports, to, you know, regular team sports as well. And we obviously know it's in, in our sport too.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I argue that it's a lot more, you know, underreported, like you said, Karen, than anything. And so, um, I mean, I think, I I hope, I mean, I think it's, it's been talked about a little bit more, especially in, in, in the world of trail running. I mean, I've also climbing, we didn't even, um, mention that, um, you know, like rock climbing, I think is pretty, you know, it emphasizes lean body mass and being light and all those other stuff. So I think it's, it's definitely, it's definitely everywhere. Um, but then also, you know, it's, if it's more prevalent, prevalent in older athletes, right. Um, so indicating that maybe it takes a little bit more time to to present itself your body is really smart and so it can kind of live off of um um deficiencies um for for a while until you know it's too little too late
1: yeah and i think i I mean that's it's so interesting because i think of kids as being kind of delicate i mean i also know that they bounce but i think that they're like kind of I, I like to me, you know, hearing your story and the story of my friends in high school of getting your period, you know, for a month and then not having it for a month and then having it again and it, there being no regularity to it, right? Like you can't track it. You never know what's going to come. It's always a surprise type of thing. Um, like how much of that is normal and how much of that is, you know, you are growing. There's a lot of energy demands on, on your body as a, as a growing adolescent. On top of like trying to menstruate, right? Like, so it's like, is that not low key red s? And like in my mind, like yes, maybe right now we're seeing it more prevalent in older athletes, but I almost wonder if that's just because we're not looking at it, or there's no standardization of what normal hormones are in teenage, in teenage girls and in young women, and so I'd be I'd be surprised if that stat doesn't change in the coming decade.
3: Yeah, or I'd be surprised if they didn't create uh, another addendum to Red S where they actually like make a specific call out for, for girls under the age of 17 or 18, because I think the symptoms and the physiological manifestation of Red
2: S would be different, Dan, than it would be after puberty and after like years of it. And yeah. this is also something that's really important to note, too, is that women the, when we lay our bone density, the most important years for us, when we have like the, when we're laying our bone density is when we are menstruating. So from when we start puberty, you know, I think it's, it depends, but like, you know, until your mid thirties, maybe early forties, depending on the woman, but So if you're amenorrheic during that period, you're actually working against your, you know, your, your body and its physiology. And so I think it's even more dangerous when we're talking about women getting into sport. And then if they have stress fractures early in life, it can almost become chronic because there's this, you know, these years where you're laying your bone density and it's, it's, it's super important. So doing sports, um, and, you know, I've included this in my, in my routine, it can't just do endurance long activities all the time. I need something that's, you know, my legs are strong from running downhill, but doing something else that encourages, you know, laying bone, um, you know, in, in doing gym work, things like this.
1: Oh yeah. We've had, we've had talks. I don't know if you remember (laughs) our text thread, our text thread Hilly. So Hillary Uh got this bone density test, um, after, after, uh, breaking her foot this spring. And I, so I have also gotten a bone density test. I was part of a Western States research study, um, back in 2018 that we'll talk about here in just a second. Um, And, you know, Hillary was shocked that her, her radius bone density was not good. And to be fair, no one's radius bone density is good unless you're doing back handsprings. But Hillary was obsessed with this and was trying to figure out what she could possibly do to increase her bone density of her radius. And so we were going through, okay, like, she's like, what about pushups? It's in your, it's in your lower arms. arms. Yep, so just radius just clarifying for
3: the audience. Yeah, yeah, so your, radi-
1: your radius is in your arm, okay? So Emily Krauss running the Western States research study said, you know, unless you're doing back handsprings, we're really not worried about your radius. It's pretty common for that not to be super high bone density in most in most adults. Um, but I had this long text start with Hilly trying to decide if what would be better, you know? Could she do push-ups? Could she do okay? She couldn't do push-ups, but could she do clapping push-ups? Would that be better? Or no? Maybe she needed to take up boxing. Boxing was what she's going to take up in order to increase her radius bone density. And I said, Hilly, I think we can focus on other areas of your body that it's more important for us to build strong bone bone density there. But I thought it was just like, yeah, it's kind of it can be alarming when you're told, mm-hmm. hey, you've you've got diminished bone density in this area, and this area needs to be able to support you. Um So.
2: I was convinced I was going to be, you know, a professional boxer.
1: Yeah, it was, it was a good, it was a good spring of text messages from Hilly. But, um, so speaking of, you know, obviously this is prevalent in other sports, but it's prevalent in our sport too. I mean, we can all talk about our own personal experiences here, but, um, you know, our sports very demanding, right. It's got that high energy demand and it's really hard to eat enough. Um, because you're going to have inter like interday day def- deficits and between day deficits, um, just due to training demand, you know, going out and doing your double long run on the weekend. Um, so Western States does research, which is really, really cool. They have this research initiative alongside the race every year. And for the last three years, so 2017, 2018, no 2018, 2019, and 2021, um, Emily Krause, um, Dr. Emily Krause of Stanford who is just, I think all of our idols maybe. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's pretty cool. Has been running a longitudinal research project alongside Western States, predominantly looking at bone health in runners. And Keely, did you have an opportunity to volunteer for that this year?
3: I did. I did have uh, an opportunity, but I, I did not volunteer, but I've added it to my list for next year.
1: Yeah, they're always looking for test subjects. And they and the first year I tried to do it, they had too many volunteers. So I didn't get to do it in 2018, but I got to do it in 2019. And what they did was they took a little blood, they did a bone density scan, they did surveys, and the surveys looked at um, they basically kind of assessed your risk for disordered eating, um, kind of your relationship with food. And they were also doing some genetic stuff, um, kind of looking at genetic predispositions for bone stress injuries at that point in time. And they got a bunch of really interesting results, things that I think we would, I mean, some not surprising, some very surprising, maybe, um, part, part of it was that, um, I'll just read this out to you so I don't mess up the stats. 44.5% of men and 62.5% of women had elevated risk for disordered eating. Okay. So high, high in both groups, right? You know, this is a bunch of volunteers at Western States. Um, 37.5% of women reported a history of bone stress injuries and 16% almost 17% had Z scores. That's how they score your bone density of less than one. So that's not great. You want one or greater on bone density scores. And they look at bone density in your femurs, in your low back, um, and oftentimes in your radius. And then 20%, 20, 20.5% 20. of men had a history of bone stress injuries. So it's less men than women. And 30% of them, had Z scores of less than one. Okay. So more women reported bone stress injuries, but almost twice as many male participants had poor Z scores. Okay. So you've got this interesting classification all of a sudden of you've got disordered eating tendencies in both groups. Um, You've got low bone density in both groups, but more so in the men and then more reported bone stress injuries. And so my question to Emily was, did the men just forget that they've had bone stress injuries in the past or, or are women more sensitive to getting these bone stress injuries? So I thought this was really interesting to kind of look and evaluate, um, you know, how prevalent is this in our sport? And obviously this is just one study. Um, I'm going to open it up just so that I can pull the title for everyone. We'll link this in our show notes too, but the title is prevalence of female and male athlete triad risk. So basically red S factors in ultramarathon runners. Um, so that, that was a really interesting study to have something that was specifically done in our sport. Do you guys have any reactions to that at all? Nothing. Um, Shock, awe. <laughs> no, I'm Shock and awe.
2: Definitely shocked. I think when like reading, reading all of this too, I mean, and it's just something I wanted to mention back a little bit, like earlier in the episode too, is that all of this, like. I think our our minds get in the way, like this whole prevalence of eating disorders and, and, you know, relative, uh, you know, energy deficiency and all of these things in men or women, I think in our sport, it's, it's very cultural. I mean, we don't like to admit it to ourselves and we don't feel as hungry as, you know, like, we're like, oh, okay, I can get through this and like push through. But I think there's a huge mental component to all of this. And, um, even with diagnosing these types of overtraining syndrome and, you know, and red S that, you know, there's a lot of the emotional toll that we, that we haven't mentioned and um, like lack in motivation, like all of this other stuff. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, these stats are completely surprising, but I mean, even as, as humans, we're not, you know, male or woman, no one is, you know, no one is, is, is immune to it. No, I mean, we're equally susceptible. I just think, um, Maybe all of that stuff, like you said, the men forget that they have bone stress injuries, or maybe they just don't want to talk about it as maybe, as maybe women do, because you know, culturally, I think women are more susceptible to things like body image and and you know our feelings and like what how how these things make us make us feel. And we're we can't always push through it, right? Our physiology kind of stops us before that. Um so yeah, that's just a bunch of things that I was thinking about when you were reading those.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And I think it's important to mention we've talked a lot about how women have a red flag, a green light, red light system in place with their periods, but men don't really have that as much. But they do, they do, do they? get a hormonal, they get a hormonal effect. And I we kind of we had a rock, paper, scissors as to who was going to say this term on air. But men obviously, like they also have hormones, particularly testosterone. And like a one one way for men to check in with themselves of like, hey, am I kind of in this zone is that, you know, they oftentimes won't have morning like morning erections, right? So that can be like decreased libido in general, both in men and women can be a red flag here as well. That training load is high and energy intake is not high enough. Um, So men out there, you can kind of say what's going on here if you uh, are not getting those morning erections anymore. So, so glad I got to say that on a podcast. It's been a long (laughs) time. Talk
2: talk about it with your coach. It's an indication of, you know. Talk
1: about about this. Yeah, it's an
2: indication of, you know, there are, I mean not to have a bad pun, but like, you know, <laughs> physical signs, you know, in both men and women. So
0: mm-hmm.
3: totally. And then you can also know that that low testosterone has similar effects. Like when women have low, low estrogen, low estrogen, because the lower testosterone levels can impact the estradiol, which is key for bone formation for men too. So that low testosterone Can lead to that lower bone density which could lead to those stress fractures um similar to the women experiencing this as well
1: yeah so so gender genders are not either gender is not immune immune to this at all and then we've got examples in our sport of this i'm wondering if one of you want to read i think the quote from mimi kotka who has done what she needed to do to come back to run again but if you can read that quote i think that's just so so interesting to hear from such a strong athlete
2: um yeah i'll i'll read it um and Mimi Kotka, anyone who doesn't know her, she's uh the Swedish ultra runner. Um, she's now 40. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about her before. Um, she just got third at UTMB. Um, but she's had a long, a kind of tough couple years. Um, and so this is a quote kind of back in her um her Instagram, but she said, I've been suffering with my body since the end of 2018. Um, this is a quick aside. If we remember in 2018 where she had that incredible um Montblanc 80K performance, um, I forget what she, what she plays, but she was like well within the top top 10. Um, and, and she, so to continue to quote, I have finally connected the dots between my low immune system, anemia, fatigue, stomach problems, lack of menstru- menstrual period, inability to run fast, and my body always running in reverse. It is RED-S, relative energy deficiency in sport. And like to, if she's been pretty honest um, with her, with her struggle, she got a ton of support. Um, and I think that continued her, um, just to share the honest journey um, that she's had kind of since 2018 and returning back to sport and um, kind of having a full reset, as she explained um, before taking on UTMB this year.
1: Yeah. And I think other people in our sport who, a woman who got Hilly and I both into the sport um, Anna Frost, you know, she, she's talked about this kind of dating back to two, 2012. I think there was a good video that maybe Solomon put out kind of, of this, of, of, like, of her going home and kind of the therapeutic therapeutic sense. Um, but it's, you know, had dealt with a ton of stress fractures and it like kind of, I think had to redefine her identity in a lot of ways there as well, as long as, as well as Jeff Rose, um, that might be a name that some of our newer ultra runners are not as familiar with because kind of burned burned a bright, you know, a bright light hard. And then I think, you know, Rob Carr and, um, Timothy Olson have both struggled with that kind of stuff too, where it's like, you just, your body can only take so much. You fly really close to the sun for a number of years. Um, I think David Laney kind of fits into that category as well. Like it's kind of finally on the up and up again after, after years of maybe burning it too hard. So, um, men and women not, not immune to that whatsoever. Do you guys have any other examples in the sport? I mean,
2: Indeed. I think Car- uh, Carol. I'm gonna botch her last name. Caroline <laughs> yeah. Um so. She and she was on, you know, thyroid medication as well. Um, and she kind of had to just stop. And you know, I think for her, she's like she she has no governor, so she doesn't know when to quit. She'll just go, 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 go. Um, and she had an incredible couple of years, and then she just couldn't like she was had a bunch of DNFs and couldn't pull it together. And I think it was, you know, it was it was because of it was because of um, red S as well. Yeah. And I think she kind of came out and said that as well.
1: Um, yeah, they weren't even, sure what was going on. They were like, Oh, maybe it's adrenal fatigue, but I think that yeah. we kind of realized that that is probably right. red S. Yeah.
3: Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, I don't have any specifics really to add, but cause I think we did this so many now, but I think a lot of people are becoming more comfortable posting about it and talking about it and saying that they were struggling and that they need to take time off. Um, and I think there's a lot of really, really promising um, discussion in this space.
1: Yeah, I do think that they're like people being really public. It's hard to be public, right? Being public means scrutiny from people. It means support, but it also means scrutiny from folks. And so I think that that's, you know, it's really important to... Uh, to see those people become mentors in the sport. And I think that most of them have been able to do that um, as and guide as, as examples for us. And so I, I wonder too, and this is a really good time for us to talk about like how do we, you kind of mentioned this earlier, how do we fight this? How do we combat red S for ourselves, for other people?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, being, we talked about this in the last episode too, kind of being mentors, having the like the open conversations, um, putting the resources out there so people can learn more. Um, I think knowledge is, is power. Um, and so then, you know, encouraging people to go out there and, you know, figure out their, their own, um, metabolism, their own body, like what they need. Um, I think as Keely mentioned too, it's like, for me, I need someone else to help me because I can't always rely on myself to make the right decisions. So, you know, getting a, a team on board, whether it's a good coach, um, a nutritionist, um, doctors, all of these things.
1: Um, I think a big part of this though, right. Is like eating, right. (laughs) Eating is really important, right? So fueling properly, fueling properly on the runs after, before runs on the runs after runs, we've talked before about how we're, we're all anti-fasting people. We're all fans of, we're all, we're, none of us are fans of fasting. We're all anti-fasting. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, can you either one of you talk a little bit about the the importance of nutrition when it comes to recovery and like both broadly for Red S, but also kind of just like, what can we be doing in our day to day to, to make sure that we're staying on top of it?
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this really is, it's something that I'm passionate about. And I took a deep dive when I was, uh, you know, injured earlier this year, but talking about timing and what that means for, um, you know, timing of nutrition, we've talked a lot about eating. And so that can be like, you know eating enough, right? but what does that look like? Like I'm someone that has never had a problem with with eating enough. like I'm always hungry. so i I eat enough. I'm not you know when I talk about this with certain athletes or other people, I'm not telling you to just like go and like eat everything you can in sight and just like eat all the time, eat all the things. Really, what yes, that's important to have kind of in when you look in a day, um, you know, eating enough, but then we're what I'm talking specifically about is the timing of that nutrition. And, um, you know, it looks different, um, for, for everyone, but, and I've read, you know, um, just going to give you kind of a general synopsis here, but when we're talking about eating enough and recovery, when we need to do a few things, we need to replenish the, the glycogen stores that have been, you know, basically used up Um, when we're in aerobic and anaerobic activity, Um, this is specifically in the muscles, right. But, you know, in the liver also, um, and then we need to, you know, training adaptations need to happen. So that's the tissue repair. Um, and you know, when muscles literally break down. And so, um, one of the main things that aids in this is carbohydrates and having carbohydrates immediately after exercise. There's been studies that have shown, you know, uh, literally like a dog after having, um, I, I read that we can link it to the show notes, this paper, um, uh, the, the author is this uh, by IV, Um, and, uh, so they, they mentioned basically a dog that was injected with glucose post, uh, exercise, you know, they showed increases in, um, obviously glycogen uh stores replenishing tissue repair all these positive markers but um when we're talking about um us right having enough you know this is within 30 minutes of finishing this exercise so it's the timing is really important so we need to have a lot of a lot of carbohydrates and they reported it's 1.1.2 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight and that can be a lot we can't always do that um uh, doing the math. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot.
1: That's a lot of food.
2: That's <laughs> a lot of food. Like, and I don't necessarily, if I'm driving to a trailhead, you know, I think the most efficient way and I, when I think about that in practice, okay, I'm thinking, Hmm, how can I do this? So, I mean, you can have a, a I think a, a shake, right. Or having something that, you know, I bring with me so I can have post-exercise, like on the drive back from the trailhead, but then, Another way to combat that is supplementing the carbohydrate with protein and amino acids. So you can have kind of less total carbohydrate volume if you put a little bit more protein and a little bit more um, amino acids in there. And that also aids in this protein synthesis, this recovery that we kind of talked about earlier. Um, But that timing, right, is really important. So yes, the total amount of calories that you're getting throughout the day, but particularly for women, we're talking about, and I shouldn't just say women, but particularly just for athletes in general, if the quicker that we can get that food in after exercise, it'll just help aid in all of that recovery, the glycogen stores, the tissue repair, and the protein synthesis that needs to happen for kind of the training to quote unquote sink in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. And it's really important
3: to eat after running as well. But I think one thing that I, I've been Pushing really hard on all of my athletes and people that I talked to about running and, and eating is that you should have breakfast before. Um, because that's I, huge. Yeah. I grew up with uh eating eating breakfast all the time, right? Because you played you played ball sports, like nobody really cared. Um, but then as I transitioned to running, like nobody I ran with ate breakfast before running. And then as I continued to run and just was running with girls who were out of college used to like division one programs, none of them would eat before running, regardless of if we ran at 8am or 11am, there would be no food intake before. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was the normal, right? Just similar to like not getting your period was the normal, not eating breakfast before running was the normal. And I continually watched some of these girls burn out and, and I just, I continued to do it as well. And one day I just found myself in this horrible energy balance and was working with coaches at the time who started talking about this thing called like energy balance within a day and, and intermittent fasting and, and all of these things. Right. And there's actually something that happens if you don't eat breakfast and then you don't eat during the run that can negatively impact you throughout the rest of the day. Um, and so this is considered like a within day energy deficiency, and it's exacerbated if you don't eat for the whole portion of this beginning of the day. Um, and so there's a paper out there, we'll link it to the show notes as well. It kind of shows that athletes who didn't eat in the beginning and had this like very, this very high energy deficiency to start had elevated levels of stress hormones throughout the rest of the day. So it was kind of lasting all day. These, these impacts from just one decision in the morning to not have this breakfast and this fuel, was lasting with them all day. And just think about the compounding effects of that. If you do that day in and day out and day in and day out, it's, your body's never out of that high stress state. Um, and so now I really just focus on telling people to eat, like train your stomach to be able to eat breakfast before you run. Like if you're running at six, if you're running at eight, like try to have something and, and don't pick something that seems healthy or that you need to eat, pick something that gets you stoked. Cause at 6am, like eat whatever the heck you want to eat before you run. Right. Uh, just get something in.
1: I eat Pop Tarts not infrequently before I run because I'm like, you know what? If I don't, if this isn't if I don't have this thing to reach for, I'm not gonna eat before I run. And so it's like whatever, whatever you can get in. I think is important. And if you're a trailer ultra runner, you got to be training your gut anyway, because how are you gonna eat calories when you're racing? So I think that this is a good practice there too. But yeah, it doesn't need to be this perfect breakfast, but getting those calories in, getting some carbohydrates in your system before you head out the door to the run, even if you're running early, which I know is hard. I'm that person where it's like, I wake up 30 minutes before we're out the door and that's not a lot of time. And so it was a big struggle, but I've recognized that I feel so much better on the run and so much better the rest of the day. Like I don't get really bonky later in the day if I get that good breakfast in ahead of my exercise. So eating breakfast is so important. What do you got Haley?
2: And also something I forgot to mention too. And these are all great points too. it. Like when we're talking about breaking that fast, right? We're all anti-fasting. And um, that's also just because something I mentioned a few episodes ago that women have, uh, we're better adapted at a baseline to... To, to metabolize fat and use that as energy. Um, but breaking that fast, it can be, you know, between the six and eight hours. So yeah, after you sleep, but also, you know, during the day, if you've had, if you like to run after work or something like this, so just having something, um, but also the timing, the timing factor, um, this is, you know, something that we we're talking about before, um, before recording this episode, uh, eating during exercise. And this is something that I haven't always done super well because, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'm so close to home. Like it's just a two hour run. Do I really need to bring something? But actually, yes, that can actually set yourself up for having better recovery. I mean, I've noticed that I have, you know, less soreness and I think I recover better. And I think it's because my glycogen stores are kind of like my glycogen, you know, resynthesis is, is, is prepped. If I, you know,
1: eat during the run and, um, Well, you've I think left it, less of a hole too, yeah, right? right? Like you, like you, instead of, instead of going in with, you know, if you can get that 200, 300, 400, whatever calories in during the run, like even for a hour? 90 minute Just run, kidding. no, no, no. <laughs> but like, I I'm terrible at doing this on the, but it, those are calories that you don't have to try to also get in later. Right. Like we mm-hmm. talk about how hard it is to eat enough for your training load. Well, if you're not eating during your run, even if it's a 90 minute run, two hour run, three hour run, four, that adds up all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. If you go through a four hour, four, four hour run and you've only had a hundred calories, you're in a huge hole coming out the, the other side of that. So eating on the run, I think is is very important for in-run fueling, for race day practice, but also for that recovery aspect of just being able to adequately meet those caloric demands every day.
3: Yeah. But why are we so bad at it? Right? Like my friend, my friend, Danielle loves to say that eating is our superpower, that we're all too stubborn to harness because if you do eat during a run, you're going to run better and you're going to feel better afterwards. And it is so simple yet we all do it and we all go runs where we don't eat. And then we complain about it later when we feel like crap. And at the end of the day, like figuring out a really efficient fueling strategy for ourselves, whether that's two gels an hour, three gels an hour, four gels an hour, six gels an hour like some some papers recommend which i think just means gut bomb unless we have the time to train our gut like i think that is our superpower and that's how we're going to be able to sustain these really high levels of exertion for really crucial long runs and workouts and and it's okay to do that it doesn't make us inferior runners it makes us way faster and way more efficient on that run right and so i think we just need to harness that superpower a little bit more because I've definitely needed to swallow my pride and do it more, but we can all be very stubborn and just think we're better than 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 food and we don't need it, but
1: we should we should eat more. Yeah, well that's 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 a good a good note. We all need to eat more. Okay, eat more, restful. Well. And I think the last thing in this section before we dive into the next thing is that all stress is stress, right? So we think of just training stress, but you have work stress, you have family stress, you have you know let's let's call it all life stress and training stress. Right. And it's all being pulled out of the same bucket. And so stress is stress and your workload might not seem like a lot, like you're running load It might not seem like a lot, but I don't know. You suddenly have a big work, work deadline, or it's the, you know, you're, it's the busy time of the quarter for you, whatever it might be all of a sudden, like something's got to give, right. And you shouldn't be cutting sleep in order to get there. So recovery is important. Mm-hmm. All stress is stress. So eat a lot, sleep a lot, mm-hmm prioritize recovery i think it's it's like oh self-care which we're all like apparently so terrible at and we just like suffering but
3: (laughs) but it's i have one more thing to add there it's similar to body image right is that we shouldn't compare our bodies to other people's bodies we shouldn't compare our training and our stress to other people's training and stress because somebody might be able to handle 90 miles a week and the other person might be at a similar level of stress running 50 miles a week because of all the other things in their life so we have to remember all these stresses account for one another because we can't necessarily try to train like someone we're watching because it just doesn't translate.
1: Yep. And that can be within, within like year variability for you as an athlete too. Like my 2018 Western States, my peak week was 80 miles because, and that was the week I ran, ran Canyons 100K it's because I was working in an ER and I was like coaching and doing all this other stuff. Like I was really, really busy. So I couldn't, I couldn't run. Like that was my biggest week by a long shot. Versus 2019, like wasn't working in ER, had a lot more time, a lot more flexibility. And my peak week was like 120 miles or something. Like, and I ran the exact same, like to like 10 <laughs> seconds or something. So you can do whatever on very different training. So it's like, even your own year to year variability is different. I was just l- listening to Dylan's interview with uh, Katie Asmuth, um, who was fifth at Western States this year. And like her training going into the 2021 Western States was like hugely impacted by um, being a nurse practitioner in LA you know, like going through a pandemic versus, um, you know, she's now working more remotely. They moved to Mammoth. Like her training will be different going into this year's Western States. And it'll be interesting to see what that means, what that looks like for her because she's got a greater capacity now to train. So year to year variability is also really important to if you're not less than because your training has to change to match your life stress. So that's a super, a super good note. So we know what Red S is. We know what low energy availability is. We know that we need to eat and we need to recover. So, what can a listener do to recognize red S in themselves or someone else in their life? What what can they do to help that person or help themselves? What can a coach do? What can a doctor do? Like, what what can we do to help? Like, to help these people, um, be it a coach, be it a doctor, be it a, a loved one, when you see someone else with red S or yourself with red S.
2: So, I mean, I think, and maybe to quote you, Corinne, um, (laughs) like encourage a healthy relationship with training, um, and, and that, you know, behavior with training. I remember, I think, um, I think Corinne, you've even said this to me before. It's like, if you take a week off of, of training, like, how does that make you feel? Um, can you do it? And I think uh, Karen, you can correct me like you you say it best, but you maybe need to re- reevaluate your relationship with exercise if you are having trouble, like with taking a week off. Um, and I think, you know, it's talking about how you're feeling around. um. um yeah, just uh, surround your relationship with food, with, with motivation levels. I think that's a really, um, good indication of if you're entering into that kind of overtraining, um, over um, and, re- and then leading into relative energy deficiency, um, you know, is your motivation do, are, do you have motivation to train, to run, to do something that, you know, makes you feel happier? or do you kind of, is it like kind of a chore and does it become stressful? I think these emotional cues can be really important to talk about with your friends, with your your coach, um, and yeah, I think that that can that can you know be the starting point. Yeah, I'm really interested to hear your guys' opinion around how to address it
3: as a coach because I found that a lot of ways that I've tried in the past don't work super well. Like sometimes the person needs to be like led by example, but not told almost. Like if you if you address the issue in a very like blunt way, it doesn't go over well. But somehow if you can like lead by example and like practice and patience somehow that seems to work better. So like, do you guys have any tips or tricks to kind of like noticing this in athletes and and almost like leading the horse to water and like hoping they drink?
1: I think it's easier when you've got really good communication with your athlete and you have a really open relationship with them. And that's not every athlete, not every athlete wants that in their coach and that's okay. Um, but I do find that that's really important. And so, you know, I've got, I've got athletes that have had maybe a history of eating disorders. I know that, um, Hilly, you definitely have with some athletes with a history of eating disorder and, and them being open enough to share that with you, um, and kind of help, help you through those ups and downs, you know, help that help you help, like help tell you, like not to not be embarrassed or ashamed or feel like they're failing you or failing the plan if they have a slip up right in that sense. And being and and knowing that like, I'm not disappointed. I think athletes oftentimes worry that they're going to disappoint us, which is, insane. Nothing you do, I think can disappoint us. Um, so I think just like really, you know, practicing what you preach, trying to have an open relationship, trying to, you know, share like those per that personal information with you or information even about, you know, other athletes or former athletes, um, who might've had a similar experience, you know, and then kind of gently guiding. Um, it's hard though, right? Sometimes people don't want help and that's like, it's really hard to take that personally, um, as, as a significant other, as a loved one, as a coach, um, it's really hard when you're trying to help someone and they don't want help. Um, and I think having learned to not take that personally has been has been beneficial for my own well being during the during this experience. But I think part of it's you know like just trying to pick up on red flags and then trying you know like are they is diet cult like is there something about diet culture that like you know do like do I have women that intermittently fast or um, are on a weird diet or on keto or something else. Like all of a sudden, like to me, those are like red flags. And then it's like, I need to be more, uh, kind of like just keeping an eye out on those, on those athletes. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, your intensity session didn't go good. Go well. Okay. Well, what did you eat before it? Okay. You didn't eat anything before it. Okay. So like, then that's a conversation that you can have. So I feel like it's just being really aware and being really open and then trying to like lightly encourage, you know, the, the like, you're not disappointing me. Like I'm here to help you type mm-hmm. of thing. And then because I'm not a dietitian, right? Like I always defer. I say, Hey, like, would you like to work with someone on this? And then deferring to a good dietitian, I think is, is can be really valuable for an athlete. Like, I don't think you're, I, I think as a coach, it's not my role to be everything. Mm-hmm. I'm not a licensed dietitian. It's not my space. So I defer. I'm not, I'm not a clinical psychologist. That's not my space. So I defer. And I think that's important. Um, to know that about yourself and know that like, and and be just really upfront with your athletes about that so that you can easily defer them when you feel like they really would benefit from it.
3: Yeah. That's really good advice. Yeah. I also try to really emphasize that like off days are for doing something completely unrelated to running. Um, and that's what I've done for myself as well try to dissociate them and just have like an actual life outside of running. That's not revolved around it at all. And I feel like that's kind of helped me like balance training with life instead of like putting all my eggs in one basket and like getting really stressed about, about running and putting all this pressure around it.
1: Yeah. I think you do have to be careful. I like, I have like true recovery days and maybe they don't have a true recovery day every single week, but it's like, I'm like, you can walk, you can do yoga. You can walk the dog. Um, but you're not running, you're not biking. It's not a cross training day. Like, because those are all, that's still metabolic tax right like find a balance in your relationship outside of running who are you outside of running and i think that keely through your injury that was a really important thing for you to kind of assess and and find right it was like who is keely outside of running like what else makes you happy like i think that's really important that you can have things that make you happy um so that you know when injuries come up when rest periods come up that you can be excited about not running which I think is really hard for many people.
3: Totally. Yeah. And then it makes the, the challenges of all of our training and our racing like that much more special. And it allows us to be able to put more energy into those because we're not wasting all of this, enter, all of this extra energy being stressed about the day-to-day training and all this other stuff that we can get so tied up to into our sport.
2: Yeah. And something I also wanted to mention, I mean, this was at the Broken Arrow Sky Race. It's kind of stuck with me. Um, Bailey, Oh, man, I'm going to always botch her last name. Kill. Kowalczyk. 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 Thank Kowalczyk. you. <laughs> Sorry, Bailey. Um, But Bailey was on the women's panel. And I remember she said something that um, she's like, eat enough, you know, and eat more than you think. Um, And, you know, and if you can't, if you can't trust, trust your body to kind of, or your mind to kind of. If that relationship has been a little bit, you know, damaged, which it has in my life as well, then get a support system to help you work through that.
3: Totally. Yeah. We all need someone to be at the dinner table. Like my boyfriend, JT, sometimes will make me sit there and just eat the second burger. If I had huge training weeks and I'm being stubborn.
1: (laughs) And at first I was a little annoyed, but it's
3: kind of amazing because he's like, no, you need this. Stop being stubborn. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and then he, and then he's like and then we're going to have ice cream later and it's going to be great. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah, I think it's always like take a few extra rest days, eat a few more pastries, um, consult with your physician, consult with your coach, have a support team. Like I feel like those are the big the big things and if you're if you're coaching young athletes, if you're coaching any athletes, just just being aware, being open, being curious, being aware, um being cognizant of how you frame things, how you say things and you know hope like growing so that you can have this like trusting relationship with an athlete so that they they feel comfortable coming to you on their bad days too just not not just on their good days
3: yeah and we'll link to all of these papers and all the resources we've kind of cited into the to show notes per usual
1: and so i think that is where we're going to leave you all for today. Um, I hope this was a good conversation. I hope it was a conversation that you enjoyed. If you have questions or comments or concerns or feedback, Yelp review stuff, whatever you want, you can slide into our DMS. We're always, we always look forward to getting those messages from you. Um, They mean a lot to us, both positive and negative and everything in between. So keep sharing. Um, We want this to be a community space and we so look forward to being with you guys all next time. Bye,
3: guys. Bye.